following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Thank you, Lord. Ha! 60 years of God's faithfulness that we celebrate, uh, celebrate his faithfulness to this church over the course of 60 years. What an amazing reality. Yes, it's worth celebrating. But I want you to know there's a couple of other milestones that I think are also worth us acknowledging and celebrating this morning. First of all, in addition to 60 years of God's faithfulness to this church, uh, you need to know that it was 35 years ago this year that God brought a young man and his family to come to a little church of 100 people on Findlay Road and to, to respond to God's call to be the pastor of that community. And he has pastored that community, this community, so faithfully now as our pastor emeritus. But 35 years of faithful service of Andy and Alice McQuitty. Andy and Alice are right here. Would you guys stand and let us just celebrate you, acknowledge you, honor you. We love you guys. Yes. Yes. Sixty years of God's faithfulness to Irving Bible Church, 35 years of faithful service from the McQuitty family. And then you also need to know that this, this year marks 15 years from the time I preached my first sermon here at Irving Bible Church. And uh, thank you. Yes. Now, I gotta tell you guys, I listened back to some of those early sermons and I wonder, why did they let me keep doing this? And I know that there were some of you here 15 years ago who were thinking the same thing, right? And yet the, the reality is that Andy and the elders gave me an opportunity before I was ready and allowed me to grow into it. And now it is the joy of my life to pastor this church. I love Irving Bible Church and I'm so looking forward to what God has in store for us in the future. 60 years of his faithfulness that we can look back and celebrate. And yet, there is so much more that God has in store for this community. At the very end of that, that video, you heard me say, this is who we are. This is who we are becoming. And this is who I hope we will continue to be on into the future. And this morning, I want us to look together at three scenes from the life of Jesus that, that I think speak powerfully to that reality. That these uh, three scenes woven together in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter two, these three scenes that Mark weaves together for us, I think speak powerfully to who we are as a church, to who we are becoming, and, and to who I hope that we will continue to be on into the future. So if you're new here today, we are so glad that you were here. You picked a good day because this will give you a sense. What we explore together over these next few minutes will give you a sense of who we are, that we are a Jesus-centered church, deeply rooted in the scripture, and focused on advancing God's kingdom work of healing and hope and compassion and transformation in the world. And that's what we see on display in these three scenes from the life of Jesus. These three, th these three scenes reveal something really important about who he is and what he's come to do. But also, these three scenes invite us to contemplate, to consider where we find ourselves in this story. 
So, yes, this morning we're going to start uh, in Mark chapter 2, but you need, to, you need to know what's come before it in order to have the context for this. Mark's story begins with Jesus uh, beginning his teaching ministry, proclaiming that the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, it's, it's broken in. And then Jesus begins to put on display the transforming power of the kingdom by by doing miracles, by healing people, reaching out and touching the untouchable, loving the unlovable, bringing healing and transformation, little glimpses of shalom everywhere he goes. And then Jesus is walking along beside the Sea of Galilee and he sees some fishermen. And he calls these fishermen, these who have, who have gone back to the family business, they washed out of rabbi school a long time ago. And Jesus, the young upstart rabbi, says to them, come, follow me. Come, be my disciples, to be with me, to, to see everything that I do, to hear everything that I say, to watch the way that I live, to, so as to become like me, so as to carry on my work in the world. Come, be my disciples. You have spent your whole life on this lake fishing for fish. I'm calling you to follow me and to fish for people, to wade into the chaos and destruction of this world and to rescue people from it. And then the next several scenes show us a glimpse of the kind of people that Jesus is calling them to go fish for, that that Jesus now encounters multiple different people who who are experiencing different kinds of of experiences of pain, of, of brokenness. And again, everywhere Jesus goes, these little glimpses of healing and hope and transformation begin to break out. Now, that's all the context for what we find in this story, beginning in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to see the way these three scenes are actually woven together, very familiar, well-known, beloved passages that are often treated separately, but that Mark actually weaves together to give us an underlying message and to invite us to find where we are in the story. Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. So Mark begins by telling us where all this took place. This took place in Capernaum, a a little fishing village, kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, up on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is Jesus' base of operations. Jesus does more miracles in Capernaum than, than anywhere else. And here he is, in it says, in the house. We think probably this is Peter's house. And, uh, and this crowd has come, they've gathered because they've heard these stories of Jesus' power. They've heard these words of Jesus preaching the kingdom. And so now they've assembled, they've, they've crowded in and filled the house, even outside the door. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was uh, part of a ministry that was reaching teenagers. And they had bought just this little old rundown shack of a house. And that was the place that we had our Bible studies with these teenagers. And I remember that just room would get crowded full of these teenagers. They would fill every nook and cranny of that little shack. And, and uh, well, it was a room full of teenagers in the middle of August. The, the smell was, you can imagine what that was like, right? But we were there, gathered together, pressed body against body to, to, to hear the, the scriptures being taught. And this is what happens in this moment in Capernaum. They're crowded in. They're hot and sweaty. Their body pressed up against body. But they're, they're listening to Jesus' every word. 
Right? He, he's preaching his message and, and he has the crowd mesmerized. They're, they're hanging on his every word. And then perhaps in a moment of dramatic pause, Jesus hears something up above him that sounds like a, an aggressive scratching at the roof. And he does what every good preacher will do in this moment. He just determines in his head while he's talking that he's just gonna fight through the distractions. You guys would not imagine the kind of inner dialogue that happens in the preacher's mind. When I'm standing up here, there's all kind of stuff that's going on in my head. And so he determines in that moment, I'm gonna fight through it. And maybe he gets a little bit louder, a little bit more energetic to try to keep their attention locked on him. And then there's a little piece of that thatch roof that, that just falls down at his feet. I, I've had to fight through all kinds of distractions, but there was one Sunday, there was a leak in our roof that was right up there. And I'm up here preaching to all of you and it's just dripping, just the whole time, dripping right here at my feet. And, and this is like Jesus in this moment. There's little pieces of the roof that begin to collapse and, and suddenly realize, Jesus realizes as he's moving into that third important point in that three-point sermon, <laughs> he realizes that he's lost them. Right? At this point, everybody is just locked in. What is happening up there? And soon they begin to see the, the roof give, give way and, and hands reaching through and, and sort of violently ripping at that thatched roof. And, and then before you know it, there's a big hole that's opened up. And you could see people up there. And then suddenly out of nowhere, a guy on a mat with ropes tied around him is lowered down in front of the feet of Jesus. Um, wow. <laughs> Talk about a distraction in the middle of a sermon. Um, here he is, right in front of him. Now, I love these guys, right? These four guys who, who have determined we are gonna do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. They've heard stories, maybe they heard sermons, maybe they saw a miracle, and they've determined in their heart, we're gonna do whatever it takes to get our friends to Jesus. I'm the kind of person whose sort of personality, my natural tendency is like, I don't wanna cause a scene, right? They're like, we're causing a scene, right? We are gonna do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. And so when they see the crowd is too large for them to possibly get through, they, they make it up to the roof and then they just start ripping that roof apart and lower their friend to the feet of Jesus because we're gonna do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. Now imagine what the friend, what that guy is thinking at this moment, right? This whole scene is playing out and his heart has got to be pounding out of his chest, right? At first he's getting lowered down and he's thinking, are they gonna drop me, right? And then he's thinking, everybody is staring at me. And then he's thinking, what's he gonna say? And the whole crowd is sitting on the edge of their seat, waiting to see what happens next. And then Jesus speaks, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, I have to think at this moment, these guys are going, wait a second, what? Right, are you kidding me? I mean, thank you very much for that sentiment, but that's not why we did this. That's not why we ripped open a hole in the roof. That's, that's very kind of you, Jesus, but we brought him here for you to heal him. And yet, the reality is Jesus knows that there is a deeper problem that this man has that goes beyond his physical problem. Jesus knows that there is a reality that is deeper than the reality that we can see with our eyes, that there is a spiritual reality, and this man's deepest need is not his physical healing, but his spiritual healing, the forgiveness of his sin. And perhaps there's a little aside that's helpful here for us. You see, I think sometimes there are some of us that have problems, but our problem is we don't know what our problem is, right? For, for some of us, you ever had this experience? You got a problem, but really the problem is you don't really know what your problem is. And sometimes we think the problems in our lives are really the problems when in reality there's a deeper problem underlying all of it. And sometimes, for some of us, we might feel like, I have a problem in my marriage. I have a problem in my career. I have a problem with my parents. I have a problem with my roommates. I have a problem with addiction. And some of us, the problem is we don't really know what the problem is and that there is a deeper spiritual reality, a deeper spiritual problem that must be addressed before any progress can be made on the presenting problem. And so Jesus knows in this moment that, that this man's deepest need is to have his sin forgiven. And so he makes this declaration, son, your sins are forgiven. And then we pick up in verse six. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. So he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? To this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Right, they hear Jesus' announcement of the forgiveness of this man's sin, and they think, this is blasphemy. Who, who can forgive sins except God alone, they ask? And the answer to that question is, no one. That in that day, that certainly the priests had been ordained to declare God's forgiveness over people. But that declaration was merely stating what God alone could do. And so their question is a good one. Who can forgive sins except God alone? The answer is no one. And the reality is that that would be considered blasphemy. And in that day, blasphemy was considered a capital offense. And it's interesting to note that this is the first expression in Mark's gospel, Mark's account of the life of Jesus, where you see this tension emerge between Jesus and the religious authorities. This is the first introduction to that. And nearly one chapter later, they're ready to kill him. This is considered a, a, a blasphemy, a capital offense. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And it's interesting because I think I've always just sort of imagined like Jesus 
had this sort of divine ability to read people's minds. And, and there does seem to be places in, in the stories where, where clearly Jesus has insight that's not been revealed in this moment, that he, he knows because he is fully God and fully human, he knows what's happening in people's hearts. And yet the question here, why do you think this way, is because that's the way they were supposed to think, right? That, that this was sort of obvious that they would think this way when they heard him declare his sins were forgiven, and then he asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? And it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because there's no real evidence of whether it happened or not. You can say it all you want, Yet, while it's easy to say, it's hard to do. And only one can do it, and that is God himself. But Jesus knows that they're thinking this, and so in verse 10, we hear his reply. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up. And he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, you think? <laughs> this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And that's scene one. You ready for scene two? Scene two, Mark carries on right into this next scene. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, for a long time, I read this story and stories like it without paying any real attention to geographical markers. There are times when the gospel writers, as they're telling the story of Jesus, will give us some indication of where the story took place. And for a long time, I paid no attention to those things whatsoever until the first time that I went to Israel. And now I've been there. I've seen it. I know what it looks like. And so when I see these geographic markers, I pay attention. I can imagine it in my mind. And I think there's something significant about the geographical marker that Mark gives us here. He says, once again, Jesus went out where? Beside the lake, right? This is going to be the audience participation portion of the sermon, right? <laughs> and the answer is always going to be by the lake, okay? Jesus went out where? By the lake, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them where? By the lake. As he walked along, walked along where? By the lake. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax collector's booth. Where? By the lake. Some of you are going, okay, Barry, you made your point, right? Maybe you overmade your point, but what's the point? <laughs> By the lake, that's right, that's right. Why, why is that such a big deal? Well, here's the thing. What we said is back in chapter one, Jesus called his first disciples. They called a group of ragtag fishermen who had flunked out of rabbi school a long time ago. And he called those fishermen by the lake. <laughs> and now he comes to Levi, also known elsewhere in the gospels as Matthew, sitting in a tax collector's booth 
by the lake. You think these guys have had any interaction before? You better believe it. This is a guy, this tax collector, who's, who makes his living off the sweat of somebody else's brow. He is considered to be a traitor by his kinfolk because he is a collaborator with Rome. He's sitting there collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, this occupying force that has come and has taken over, is occupying the nation of Israel. And so this man is seen as a collaborator. He's seen as a traitor. He is despised by everyone in his community, certainly despised by the fishermen off of whose backs he earns his living. Levi, Matthew, would have been despised and rejected, a social outcast in his day. Now, it's interesting to note that here we find him called into this band of disciples with the fishermen. As the story plays out, we find out more information about other people that Jesus recruits into his little band of disciples. Later, we find out about a guy named Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot was a member of the party called the Zealots. And the reason that they were called Zealots is that their zeal was for the overthrow of the Roman Empire. Sometimes they would carry around a knife in their belt just in case they came across a Roman and nobody else was around. These guys, Levi and Simon the Zealot, are at the opposite ends of the political spectrum of Jesus' day as you could possibly be from one another. Three years they followed him around. You ever think it got heated around the campfire? Right? And I don't mean that as a pun. Right? Heated, campfire. Okay, sorry. I mentioned if you're new, I'm glad you're here. Maybe today wasn't that great a day for you to come after all. I'm better than that, I promise. Think it ever got heated around the campfire? But the thing is, what these guys discovered is what drew them together in Jesus was more important than anything that kept them apart in the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that the things that kept them apart in the world were meaningless. It doesn't mean that they're trivial. It just means that what kept them together in Jesus was more important than anything that kept them apart in the world. And that they were willing, because of that commitment to Jesus, to sit at the campfire together. And that's the kind of church friends that we want to be here at Irving Bible Church. We, we got people that are all over the place on every end of the political spectrum. And, and you might find yourself feeling difficult to, to be in community with people who are that different from you, who think differently than you and look differently than you and vote differently than you. And I just say, um, get ready for heaven, <laughs> right? Because you're going to spend eternity with these people. And so we can practice together now. Jesus had these guys that were at opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they were there together with Jesus around the campfire. But imagine Levi in that moment. Levi is despised, rejected, social outcast. Nobody wants anything to do with him. And I can't help but wonder if maybe he's come to believe that that's the way that God sees him too. That not only does my religious community want nothing to do with me, but maybe, just maybe, God wants nothing to do with me either. And then he hears this upstart young rabbi 
say to him the words that a rabbi would say when calling a disciple. Come and follow me. Come to be with me, to become like me, to carry on my work in the world. Here he is, a rabbi saying this to me, Levi says. But there was a part for Levi to play in Jesus' story that only he could play. And we believe today that the gospel of Matthew, the first of our New Testament gospels, is written by the same guy that Jesus called out of his tax collector's booth. That's the end of scene two. You ready for scene three? Here we go. Scene three. Picking up in verse 13. No. Picking up in verse, uh, uh, what is that? 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many of the tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here Levi, having been called by Jesus now to become one of his disciples, decides to throw a party at his house. And it's a party for all the other social outcasts who are welcome to come and eat with Jesus. And for the Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders, the religious establishment, this was a really big deal. The Pharisees were dedicated to seeing the renewal of Israel, to, to, to call people to obedience to Torah, to follow God's law. These were people who were dedicated to the Bible. They were passionate about it. It was a big deal. And one of the ways that they actually went about trying to work out their vision for the renewal of Israel was actually through gathering people together at tables for dinner, recruiting people into their movement around tables. And now here's Jesus This young upstart rabbi who's going around talking about the kingdom of God and he's eating with people like that as though the kingdom of God has anything to do with people like that. And that, my friends, is the whole point. The kingdom of God is for those kinds of people. The kingdom of God is for the the, the burnt out, the the bedraggled, the, the exhausted, the messy, the broken. The kingdom of God is for people like that. The kingdom of God... It's for people like us. And Jesus is there at this dinner party. And the uptight religious people are are all up in arms about it because Jesus' whole ministry is characterized by throwing these amazing dinner parties that everybody wanted to be at except the uptight religious people who are not very fun to have at dinner parties anyway. (laughs) And Jesus, once again, knows what they're thinking. And so we hear this in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. People who know they are broken. People who are willing to admit that they're sick. You, you see the way in which these three scenes are woven together. And you see from this picture emerges a vision of Jesus, the one who has come to bring healing to sin-sick people in a sin-scarred world. Right? Jesus has come to bring healing to sin-sick people in a sin-scarred world. And the only prerequisite for experiencing that healing is admitting that you are sick. 
that you have need. There's nothing you can do to earn his healing love. The only thing you can do is acknowledge that you need it. And when you acknowledge that you need it, it is there for you. Jesus has come to bring healing to sin-sick people in a sin-scarred world. And so for us, the question is, where do you find yourself in the story? Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you the man on the mat? Right now, are there some problems in your life and and the problems go go real deep? Are, Are you the one who just finds yourself at that moment in your life where you desperately need to be at the feet of Jesus? Where you desperately need to hear his tender words of affection the way that he calls this guy son? As he declares over him the truth, your sins are forgiven. I I imagine sometimes encountering people that we read about in the Bible when we get to heaven. And I just imagine sort of bumping into this guy one day and asking him, what's your story? And he might say something like, you know, the, the, the thing about me is that what most people know me for, what most people know about my story, was Jesus gave me back the ability to walk. But what you need to know is that that was nothing, nothing, nothing compared to Jesus forgiving me my sins. That I had a need, I had a problem, and I didn't even know what my problem was. And my need, my problem was deeper than I ever imagined. And yet Jesus knew my problem, and he came to bring healing to me spiritually. And for that, I'm forever grateful. This morning, are are you the man who desperately needs to be the feet of Jesus, to receive his love, his forgiveness? Or are you one of the four friends? I love these guys. And when I read the story of these guys, I say, that's the kind of church I want us to be. I want us to be the kind of church that'll do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. That I want us to be the kind of church that will be undeterred, that we will be unstopped, that we will overcome whatever obstacle that gets in the way, that we will rip down walls and tear through ceilings to get people to Jesus. Because Jesus has come to bring healing to a sin-sick world. And I want us I want us to be the kind of people who will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. Are you one of the four friends? Or perhaps this morning, are you Levi? Do you find yourself here this morning saying that sounds great and all, but I think God's given up on me. I think maybe God wants nothing to do with me. If if he truly does see me and truly does know me, he knows where I've been, he knows what I've done, he wants nothing to do with me. And perhaps this morning you need to hear that he does see you, that he does know you, that he does love you, and that he is calling you, calling you deeper into a life of discipleship 
calling you to experience his healing power in your life and calling you to play the part that only you can play in the world as he delights over watching you do what he made you to do. Are you the man on the mat? Are are you one of the four friends? Are you identify most with Levi? Or perhaps what we need to contemplate is, are you a member of the crowd? Because Jesus' whole ministry is characterized by a whole bunch of spectators who saw it all playing out in front of them. And they perhaps got all excited at points along the way. And yet, they saw it and they went back to their encumbered lives of quiet desperation. You see, Jesus is surrounded throughout his ministry by crowds of adoring fans. But at the end of the day, he has a small band of committed disciples. And he knew that the change that he came to bring in the world wasn't gonna happen from adoring fans, but from committed disciples. And each and every one of us in this place, he is inviting to an exciting adventure that will change our lives and change the world, but we have to move from the sidelines into the center of the story. We have to move from adoring fans to committed followers, to yielding our life to him and saying, Jesus, I'm here. Use me however you see fit for your kingdom purposes in the world. Friends, Jesus came to bring healing to sin-sick people, the sin-scarred world. And he's got a part for you to play in his movement of hope and healing and compassion and transformation. And it's a part that only you can play. May we continue to be and to become a church that is willing to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together today to celebrate 60 years of your faithfulness to this church body. 35 years of our beloved senior pastor emeritus and his family for the way in which they have served you. God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that you've given me to be a part of the leadership of this church that I love so deeply. God, I pray that inspired by this story, that we would continue to be a church that is, that is um, centered on Jesus, deeply rooted in the scriptures, and passionately committed to advancing your kingdom work of hope, healing, compassion, and transformation of the world. It's who we are, it's who we are becoming, and it's who I hope we will continue to be on in the future. And God, this morning there are people here who need to respond to what you're stirring in their lives as they consider where they are in this story and who they most identify with. God, if there are those here this morning who need your healing touch and need the forgiveness of their sins, God, I pray that you might stir in them that they would respond and just say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust in your love for me, your sacrifice for me on the cross, your victory through the resurrection. I wanna receive the gift of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. And Father, for all of us, may we dedicate ourselves to being a part of a church and and to contributing our part to the church that says we'll do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. 
If there are any who are here this morning believing that you've given up on them, would you let them hear your call, that you're wooing them to yourself and inviting them to participate in your mission in the world? And God, for all of us, that we would move off of the sidelines and into the center of the story to be a part of the hope and healing that Jesus came to bring in the world. And this is our prayer in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.